Hello and welcome. Welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by David Gramming, who's an awesome gentleman. And in the spirit of The Connected Generation, David and I were unpacking how can family businesses and family offices on the African continent be better connected with each other and with the rest of the world? How can we build sustainable networks? How can we make meaningful connections with one another so we get the right support, we get the right insights, and also get business opportunities? So we had a really, really interesting conversation that I'd encourage you to tune in and enjoy. Hi, David. Welcome to The Connected Generation. I'm excited to have you today. Hi, Nika. Thanks so much for having me. Equally excited. Uh, follow your podcast. And great opportunity for me to speak to you today. Yes, I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to learn more about David and your journey into your work in the family office space. Sure. I'm happy, happy to share the story. It's an unusual one, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so... I have a bit of a non-linear career, really. I worked in in all sorts of sectors. I started in banking. I was a financial crime investigator. I worked in intelligence, worked for a software company. And then the last role before starting my firm, Gramic Advisory, was with a single family office. I sort of stumbled into that position, was a friend of the principal, was a family office from Kuwait, and I became their director for international relations. So my job was really to to support the family in the process of building a network, mainly in Europe and in Africa. The US was not really a territory for them, was not of interest. South America, he lived himself in the past, speaks Portuguese, so quite well connected there. The Middle East, obviously, what can I do there? (laughs) They speak the language, Mm -hmm. not just linguistically, but culturally as well. So they have a very different way of connecting to their peers than I would. So Europe and Africa really was my playground for them. And I established relationships, connections for the family in the family office world Mm. that were beneficial to them. And the more I grew the network on behalf of the family, the more my own network obviously grew. Mm -hmm. So eventually the first family came up and said like, hey, we like what you do for for the family office that you work for. There's a project where we need some support, where we need to get connected to the right people. Could you help out? And I was very happy to do that. In the beginning, we worked a lot, or I worked a lot with Israelis, Israelis who were Mm -hmm. seeking connections in the Gulf Mm -hmm. uh, by Bahrain, Saudi, for example, because of the back then non-existing diplomatic relationships. Mm -hmm. They were just not able to reach out to them. It was very difficult for them. So we helped them to establish these connections. Once... Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain established relationships. I thought, like, that's going to put a damper on our business, but actually quite the opposite happened because mm-hmm. now that they were allowed and even encouraged to talk to each other, they didn't know who to talk to. So they mm-hmm. came running to us again saying, okay, yalla, habibi, you know, it's like we need to find the right people to speak to. We want to be quick. We want to be the first ones. So actually it gave our business and the whole idea of what we do, the networking consultancy, a big boost. Wow. So tell us more about your business now? What do you do? So we do two things, basically. We we do one thing, and that is connecting people. This is really the main business that we have. We build, provide sustainable networks 
of family offices and private investors to our clients. So as I said in the beginning, our clients were mainly family offices who mm-hmm. struggled to make connections. One of them, for example, was a Swiss family office in the food manufacturing and food processing business in Switzerland, but they were looking for relationships and connections in Africa. They sort of missed the entry into China 30 years ago, and they think of Africa as the new China and don't want to repeat this mistake. So they want to be one of the first ones, but they quickly notice or realize, okay, China is one country, Africa is an entire continent with 54 countries. So where Mm -hmm. do I start? Where do you set foot first? And I mean, I don't need to tell you, but Africa is so incredibly diverse. Very. From a non-African perspective, we always speak about Africa as if it was just this one continent and no matter where you go, it's all the same, which really is not true. So as I said, we, we started working with families mostly, and then we had the first family who launched a fund and said, look, this is now we're, we're getting to a point. We've got connections, but the fundraising part or making connections in order to position our fund, this is difficult for us. So I helped mm-hmm. them there. That mm-hmm. sort of dragged on the second fund that didn't have a family office backing, and then other corporate clients came. So our job today, again, is connecting people. And many of them, although not all of them, come obviously with a sort of fundraising purpose. So what Mm. we are not, and I always stress this, is we're not a fundraiser. We're a fundraising enabler. That means we want you, the startup, the fund, the family office, the investment opportunity, we want you to present yourself, to sell yourself, to tell your story, because nobody knows it better. Nobody feels hopefully more passionate about it than you do. What we do is to take all the hassle away from you, meaning Mm. identifying the potential investors, doing the research, the analysis, the database building, the initial engagement, the warming up, providing the platform to present yourself and to engage with the audience that we curate for you. All this we do up until the point where it comes to, hi, we are company X and we're launching a fund for you. This, the fund then does themselves. Really, really interesting. And I'm just thinking about a number of the families I know within my network are very well networked in the local host country, say Ghana, because they've been doing business for many years, many generations in Ghana. They know the people in government, they know the business players, they know regulators, and they can navigate their way through the system domestically. But I want to know from your perspective, why is networking important for family businesses, particularly on an international level? Networking means opportunities. Networking means knowledge exchange. It means lending a helping hand, right? Networking means making friends. And even families that are quite well established can do with some good friends. And you often see this when they say, "Ah, we've been going back for years and years and decades, and they trust each other blindly. But how did this happen? Eventually, Mm. they built this relationship. And where? Usually at university Mm -hmm. or maybe mm-hmm. in their first job in, in a bank where they worked, and then they stayed friends. But it's the same for us now. So I mainly work from home. So how and where do I make friends now? Whether it's on a social level or on a professional level, you don't because you lack sort of a circle that you constantly penetrate by going to university every day, by going to the office every day where you meet people. So we are basically providing these opportunities. And it's important for people and for families to strengthen their network for the purpose of identifying opportunities, sharing Mm -hmm. their opportunities, getting support, getting insight. And, you know, we host conferences as well. 
right? Mm. So we always have families who say, ah, oh, we want to share our story. We've been very successful in this and that field. Mm. Well, that's very nice. But what we care a lot more about is families who share their stories of failure because that yes. means they learn. And obviously, it takes a lot of guts to sit on a stage and say, look, we tried, but <laughs> we burned our fingers. We lost X amount of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But this is the stories of the Jeff Bezos of the world and the Mark Zuckerbergs and the, I don't know, Dan Gortis. We all know them. We've read mm -hmm. them. We've heard mm -hmm. about them over and over again. What we don't hear is why did something not work out? And mm -hmm. by knowing why something didn't work out, you can avoid making the same mistake taking on a new path. That's why networks are important. You said something before that many families are locally well-connected. In mm -hmm. Ghana, for example, mm -hmm. they know they're saying, they know the authorities and the regulators and families and everything. Mm -hmm. You just cross the border and they already don't know anyone. Yeah. <laughs> and this is an issue because, first of all, you can learn from others, right? Mm -hmm. How are things being done abroad? Take ideas back home. I mean, you see it in history. Empires that expanded quite dramatically, the most successful ones were those who brought back home knowledge, who traveled, who engaged with people, who learned, and then brought this back home. If you remain in your bubble, your view is somewhat limited and you don't really develop. But with family offices, again, it's also, I would say, a regional international level, not a global international level. Is, is mm. Because I mentioned before we do conferences, right? We always focus on a region. So we do a conference, for example, in Vienna for families from Central and Eastern Europe. We do one in Mauritius for families from the African continent. So there's always something, there's a common denominator, something they have in common, a mutual background that they have and, and sort of a mutual story that they share and where there's a minimum of understanding for each other. If I do a conference with an international hodgepodge audience, that's not going to get me or the family anywhere because the mm. Japanese family and the Nigerian family and the Russians, well, they're going to have very little in common. They might find it quite exciting, you know, to shake somebody's hand that they've never seen before. But is there potential for business collaboration? And mm. then can I really learn from them? Because if the environment in which they operate the judicial system, for example, right? The, the political system is so fundamentally different from my own, then what can I take from that? And if you look family offices, no matter whether they're new, first generation, or maybe long established, they are deeply rooted in their home country, in their home, maybe even in their hometown or village. We see this in Germany, for example, lots of medium-sized companies, hundreds of millions of turnover, still considered medium-sized in Germany. They are headquartered in a small village, not in a big city, not exactly close to an airport and not very much internationally linked, right? But they stick to what they know and where they come from. So the Germans, they might look at the surrounding markets, the Czech Republic, Switzerland, Austria, France, but they don't immediately make the leap halfway across the world and go mm -hmm. to Australia or to China. So mm -hmm. therefore, regionally international is a lot more important than, you know, I love what you said about regional networking is really the focus, because when we think about it in Africa, a lot of family businesses or businesses generally haven't maximized doing business with other Africans. So intra-African trade, intra-African investment, honestly, could be a lot better than it is. Even 
intra-Africa connectivity, flight connectivity, it's easier for me to fly to London than it is for me to fly to Mauritius. I had to fly through Dubai and it took over 24 hours for me to get to Mauritius, which is in Africa. So it totally makes sense. And so my follow-on question is, you know, you were talking about really focusing regionally. Is there ever a case, does it make sense to connect families from different regions or different continents? Absolutely. I mean, there are booming regions that have, based on political circumstances or this development or sort of similar story that have an interest in the region. So you've got China that is quite present in Africa. Everybody knows that. They were praised and hailed as sort of China is coming and China is developing us. And then eventually there was the sober awakening. And now people are wondering, was that really the smartest idea to give everything to the Chinese? So who can we get on board as a potential new partner? Well, Europe with a colonial history is always eyed with a lot of resentment, perhaps. So who do we have in the immediate neighborhood, so to say, in our backyard that we could do business with? And then we've got the Gulf. So the Gulf, for example, Gulf and Africa, they do, or parts of Africa at least, share quite a lot with the Gulf. You've Mm. got the language, you've got the religion. So Sudan, for example, is considered sort Mm. of an Arab country, although it is in the heart of Africa. So there is certainly a link. If you look at Sudan was, for example, part of the club of countries that isolated Qatar. So it was initiated by Saudi with the UAE. Egypt was part of it, and Sudan as well, two African countries. But through the linguistic link, the culture, the religion, there are certainly bridges that have already been built or that have been there for a very long time. So they don't need to be built. Maybe they need to be improved and stabilized a little bit. And sort of it's an opportunity for Khartoum, for example, to say, look, we've got this link already into the Gulf, right? So why don't we position ourselves as a gateway Africans come here and walk the bridge that's already there into the Gulf region. It takes a lot of work, obviously, you know, and we're far from Sudan being sort of the Switzerland <laughs> of Africa. But these are visions and ideas that could be worked on. So it absolutely makes sense to connect regions. It makes mm-hmm. sense to connect Western Europe and Eastern Europe. It's one continent. You know, mm-hmm. but also, mm-hmm. we see the divide. This is why we're doing a Central and Eastern European conference and not a European conference. Because if you look at Eastern Europe, for example, until 30 years ago, you had the Iron Curtain. There was communism. Yeah. So all yeah. the wealth we have there today is first generation mm. or just has been passed on to the second generation. So the wealth owner is pretty much still very hands-on a business mm. rather than an investor fourth, fifth generation family office that only looks at preserving wealth for the future generation. The Eastern Europeans, they're still very much growing. They still want to be seen. They haven't gotten the point or aren't, haven't reached that point where they say, well, we just lean back and we sort of benefit from the fruits of labor of the past generations. So they're still in the middle of it. They go through processes that are almost daily business for other family offices, but they still need to learn them. So that's why when we do the Eastern European Family Office and Wealth Summit, yes, the focus are family offices and wealth owners from this very specific part of Europe. We do invite others as well, as long as they have 
either a story to tell that's beneficial or if they have a vested interest in the region. So we don't exclude anyone ever. We don't do this. At the Africa conference, we've got families from the U.S. that are not African-American. Mm-hmm. You know, they are mm-hmm. they're as wide as I am. They have got no history with the continent except that they invest exclusively in Africa. Mm-hmm. So these people we bring on board as well, of course. Why? Because they can offer an informed outside view and opinion on the African continent. It's not someone being very smart, textbook smart, and saying, well, Africa should be doing this and that, and mm-hmm. has never set foot on the continent. So we invite the outsiders who actually have hands-on experience as well. It's really, really important what you've just said, because a lot of people do, from the comfort of their various locale, and they have never stepped foot on the soil of Africa, um, have very well... <laughs> have strong opinions about doing business or investing on the continent. And it's like you mentioned earlier, it's a complicated continent. It's a large continent. It's not a heterogeneous continent. It's really important that we involve local players. And so just segue into that, what's your view of the family office space in Africa? What opportunities do you see existing for family offices? Well, I mean, the family office space itself is basically non-existent in mm-hmm. Africa. There are so, so few. I would say South Africa, yes, there you have a few that call themselves family offices that know exactly what it means. You might have a few family offices across the continent that as per definition are family offices, but they don't call themselves that because they don't even know family office. And then obviously you have the absolute majority who would qualify to come or to open their own family office, but they just don't know about it. So when mm-hmm. we started with the Africa Family Office Summit in 2018, and we invited wealth owners and we reached out to them and they said, hey, we would like to invite you. Said, oh, this is very kind, but look, I'm not a family office. And they declined. Mm. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's very kind and, and very honest and humble of you, but you still qualify. You are a wealth owner. And we want to bring you in to learn about family offices as well. So I think Africa holds tremendous opportunities in every mm-hmm. aspect, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's agriculture, whether mm-hmm. it's development, but also for the financial industry. There is so much to be done here, yes. so much education to be done in the first place, and then move on. So it's a lengthy process. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's not as sophisticated as perhaps the Middle East is, but at the same time, the market is not as saturated either. This is why we don't do the 127th conference for family offices. You can't, there are events on a daily basis. <laughs> I mean, how do you pick them? And so many are crap also. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Because they try, and this whole family office notion label is being abused because it's not protected. It's like everybody can call themselves a personal trainer just because they've been to the gym three times. And everybody can call themselves a family office because they manage assets. Well, do you know what? You are an asset manager. Asset manager. You're not a family office. And I think this needs to be sort of introduced to Africa. Africans need to, first of all, hear about family office in the first place and then learn to distinguish between who is a genuine family office and who just disguises themselves as one. So if you come, if you're patient, if you have time, and if you have the love for the continent, well, then I think the opportunities 
in the family office space in Africa are almost unlimited because there is so much wealth. And, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning, I was a financial crime investigator and I worked mm. in, a, in a private bank. And whenever something remotely African came across my desk, that African that was not Kenya, Nigeria, or South Africa, mm -hmm. I had to wave a red flag. Wow. So just the fact of you as a wealth owner coming from Africa was risk enough for the bank to say immediately no. And this is, there's so much prejudice and so much, so many wrong views on the continent. Of course, there is corruption. I mean, we don't want to deny that, right? Mm -hmm. But there's corruption elsewhere Everywhere. as well. Switzerland and look at FIFA and you mm -hmm. know what's, it's one of the biggest corruption cases in the world. It involves royals from the Middle East and it involves politicians from across the world and sports, the sports profession. I mean, it's ridiculous. But then everyone's pointing at Africa because this is corrupt. It's not the case. You've been to our Mauritius summit and you know people who were there, lots of wealth in one room, and the, it was earned fair and square through hard work. You've got supermarket chains and you've got real estate developers and you've got people in the oil business who made it work without paying bribes. I think you remember, I don't know if it was at the first or the second event, we had Anezu. Anezu yes, from Anezu, yeah. And she said something. She said, it's all about integrity. Africa doesn't mean that just because the continent has a tendency for corruption doesn't mean that you have to be corrupt yourself. There mm -hmm. are ways around it if you want to do it in a proper way and show integrity. You don't need to bribe people. And mm. I mean, that impressed me quite a lot because she's from Zimbabwe. <laughs> this mm. is sort of the poster boy of corruption in my eyes. And mm. she makes it work. And I speak to her on a regular basis. And sometimes you hear the frustration in her voice. She's like, oh, David, you know, mm. it is so tough. We struggle. But she's not giving in. And I think she sticks to her guns and she says, we do it the proper way. And we want to be sort of a poster boy of how it's done properly. And mm -hmm. uh, I admire that quite a lot. Yeah, really, really important. Very admirable. You've mentioned a lot. <laughs> but what I really love about what you said was you unpacked the systemic stereotyping in the financial services industry when it comes to managing asset opening bank accounts for African business owners. And you also mentioned the fact that there are not many wealth owners that see themselves as family or potential family offices. So there's a huge opportunity that exists for existing first generation with second generation family businesses to actually move into set up a family office, whether it's single family office or multi-family office. But I think there's a case for multifamily office established on the continent for people on the continent that understand the way of doing business on the continent, that understand that by virtue of owning a business in Burundi doesn't mean that the wealth owner made the money through illegitimate means or is politically exposed or what have you. And that also understand the cultural nuances because a family office, like you said, is not an asset manager and it irritates me I was so glad when you brought that up. I see it all the time. I'm just like, really? This is just an asset manager that's trying to market to wealthy business families and trying to attract their money. It's not the same thing. A family office actually should have an understanding of navigating family dynamics, dealing with conflict resolution, dealing with succession planning, dealing with family governance, 
and things of the like. It's not just an asset manager. So there's a huge opportunity on the continent to develop multifamily office for Africans on the continent. I agree. And I think the ones who seize this opportunity are far ahead of others, are people and companies from the Gulf. They position themselves Mm -hmm. for African families. In the past, until today, London is really sort of an attraction point for African wealth owners. Paris and Brussels and Geneva, maybe a little more for the Francophone Africans, but they're still being stereotyped in in Europe and they're still regarded a little bit like, so how did you make your money? And they still struggle with opening their bank accounts and so on and so forth. Whereas in the Middle East and Dubai, they really don't care so much. We don't want to go into why this might be, but at least they feel more welcome. They feel safer. They feel Dubai is a more attractive place for them than perhaps London is, at least for their financial needs. And you're well connected to Dubai. Emirates flies to most countries on the continent. It's a place that is safe, that is luxurious, where you probably, if any racism at all, you will probably experience certainly a lot less than you would, you would in Europe. And then all this makes Dubai quite attractive mm-hmm. for Africa, which is a bit of a shame because Africa could do this themselves. Yeah. Uh, Mauritius is certainly trying to. Mauritius positioned itself as the Switzerland of Africa, as this mm-hmm. sort of, we're not even on the continent, we're an island, we're protected, mm-hmm. you know, we're safe and clean and nice and we've got a thriving financial industry and please come here. But I think that Mauritius struggles perhaps a little bit with the trust issue. They're not as established. They haven't created a brand for themselves in the mm-hmm. same way Dubai has. So the average African wealth owner, if you had to choose between Mauritius or Dubai, I think the tendency goes towards Dubai. Mauritius mm-hmm. is probably the more attractive place for a holding company, mm-hmm. not a place to manage your wealth and your assets. Mm. We've said a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I really enjoyed this conversation with you, David. My last question for you, are you excited about the future? Yes, absolutely. Not the least because I hope that in the very near future, Corona is going to be over and that we can travel again, meet through, sort of (laughs) network and meet people. So your podcast is called The Connected Generation. Mm. I mean, it's so close to what we do of connecting Mm. people, connecting generations. And it's quite interesting to see this is something that we want to break up. And this is why I'm excited about the future. You do see quite a lot of wealth owners sort of moving within their own circuits only. Mm. So you've mm-hmm. got the multi-generational old money that sticks to each other. Then you've got the first generation wealth, whether they are startup founders or young entrepreneurs. It's all these tech guys with their turtlenecks yep. and great <laughs> and all hip and cool, but they don't take hands with maybe the patriarch of a fourth, fifth generation family business who is rather traditional in a suit and a tie. And this is where we want to bring people together because mm. the young generation, the first generation, well, they can learn a lot from these old families, from the old money on how to weather storms, for example, because they've weathered quite a few, whether it was world wars, financial crises, and so on and so forth. At the same time, the old families can learn quite a lot from the new ones or from the young ones because they actually brought something up, they grew something from nothing in many cases in a very changed reality and, and environment. And everything is for mostly that tech-driven 
And mm -hmm. there are connection points between old families and new families, between young people and older people, and people from different regions where they can really sort of leverage each other's experience and work together, which doesn't happen all too often. So you've got the mm. tech startup summit and you've got the family office summit. Yep. <laughs> Why do you segregate them? Why don't you bring them together and say, hey, what can we learn from one another? And so another reason yeah, that I'm excited about the future is exactly that, that we bring people together face-to-face, -to -face, physical. I mean, we do, for some of our clients, we do virtual seminars mm -hmm. as well. Also, no question. And they're very successful, but they have one disadvantage. There's no networking. There's no shaking hands. There's no patting each other on the shoulder and saying, hey, good to see you again. Let's sit down and talk. What have you been up to? And see if there's something that you can do together. Mm -hmm. And the logo, the slogan of our company is no level of technological sophistication can replace a handshake. Powerful. This is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Zoom and the pandemic has shown that. We do meet and we maybe speak even more often to people halfway around the world than we have prior to the pandemic. But before, we might have met them at a conference only once a year, but we sat down and we talked and we're not distracted. And then mm. you know, you're staring into your screen and your eyes become a little <laughs> teary. <and laughs> after the 15th Zoom call and the emails are popping up. And yep, it's <laughs> exhausting. When you speak to them. All this doesn't happen when you meet mm. physically. And this is something that we want to preserve. Digitalization, Industry 4.0, God knows what, technology, love it, need it, brings us forward. But we can't miss out on the social aspect, especially when it comes to family work. Because family is a social construct. You know? yeah. It's multi-generation. You've got the grandparents, the parents, the children. It's sort of a union of people. They're working together and knowledge is being passed on. And this is just within the family. But you need to do this intra-family as well. But this doesn't work mm. on a Zoom call. For this, you need to bring people together. Completely. It's essentially social capital, which yeah. is an important capital for family businesses to develop. Well, work is your network. Yes, indeed. It is true. But yeah. the network isn't grown by adding someone on LinkedIn. <laughs> and then, you know, this is... And you're a young person, for you to say that. <laughs> no, no, it's true. I mean, it's true. It's completely true. Yeah. The trust factor you build when you meet people in person. Yeah. Is... yeah. You can't establish trust yeah. online. That yeah. doesn't work. You need to look into people's eyes. You need to get a feeling for them. And especially with family offices, they're different than institutional investors. Institutional investors have the pressure to allocate funds. Yes. They care a little less. They just look at the deal, at the numbers. They crunch them. Okay, that's it. Let's do it. A family office wants to know who am I going right. bed with, so to say. Mm -hmm. Who are you? <laughs> Pull down your pants. I want to examine you. Say, like, I want to know who you are. I want to understand you. And so I'm working on a deal at the moment with a single family office. And I shared with them, it was an investment opportunity here in Europe, and I shared everything they requested, numbers and data and so on and so forth. And then I said, so what's the next step? What is it that you need? Because they say, well, we need to meet them. It's like, okay, well, it's a bit difficult now, you know, traveling. They know we'll do it somehow. We'll meet somewhere in neutral territory, neutral grounds where we can all travel to, ideally without restrictions. But we want to meet them. And it's like, so what is it that you want to discuss? Like, Nothing. I just want to know who these people are. I want mm -hmm. to get a feeling for them. Also, if we are compatible, mm -hmm. do they have the same values? Do they have the same leadership management style as we would expect it from them? 
does it fit into our portfolio of other companies? Again, from a social perspective, can I talk to them? And that just shows you, again, mm-hmm. it's meeting, it's networking, it's connecting that is so important for family offices, much more than for others. And mm-hmm. I think lots of providers of financial services, funds, and so on, so forth, they need to understand, they need to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Travel to where your clients are, meet them if possible. Very difficult at the moment. But then let's do the Zoom call with cameras. I yeah. set up Zoom calls and is it okay if I don't turn on my camera? Well, of course it is, but I'd prefer to see you. You know, mm-hmm. see your reactions because being on the phone is so much less than being on a video chat. Seeing mm-hmm. you smile, if you nod, if you shake your head, whatever, the emotions that are being sort of transported in such a call. And this is absolutely fundamental for anyone who wants to do business with families. So very well said, David. <laughs> if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how best can they reach you? Well, they can add me on LinkedIn. <laughs> and then <laughs> you have a, good, a real conversation. They can send me an email. They can reach out to you. And then I'm sure you're kind okay, enough to pass it on. So it's not that difficult to get in touch <laughs> with me if you really want. <laughs> This has been awesome. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed your company this morning. Likewise. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you. And I hope to see you real soon. Yes, in Mauritius, hopefully. <laughs> Indeed. Be well, stay safe. And, and looking forward to speaking again soon. Yes, take care, David. Thank you. I really, really loved that conversation with David. And what's really ringing in my head was his observation about the importance of in-person connections of looking someone in the eyes and sensing them out of shaking a hand of just body language and I had almost forgotten just how important it is to meet people in person tucked away in my little office and jumping on zoom all day but there really is nothing like an in-person genuine meaningful connection how can you build meaningful connections with other family businesses or family offices so you develop your network. And really, it's all about trust. It's all about trust. As Stephen Covey says, trust is the glue of life. It's the most essential ingredient in effective communication. It's the foundational principle that holds all relationships. And, you know, trust is not transactional. Trust takes time. So we have to be patient in sowing the seeds, in nurturing relationships, not just meeting people and then forgetting about them or meeting people and then making an instant demand for resource or a favor. It's about nurturing and getting to know them for who they are and being authentic with them. That's how we develop trust and that's how we develop our relationships. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. Take care. And God bless you.